now time to present the Word of God. And today I've titled the message, Jesus' Way of Regeneration. 예수님의 방식 중생. I'm going to talk about this whole important topic known as regeneration or rebirth or the concept of being born again. 중생 또는 거듭남에 대한 토픽으로 제가 말씀을 전하고자 합니다. In order to um, give you a sense of context for what I'm about to address today, we actually need to return back to last week's message, in which uh, at the last part of that, in verses 23 to 25 of chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, we find this statement. And shall we read this out loud together? Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. 6월절에 예수께서 예루살렘에 계시니 많은 사람이 그의 행하시는 표적을 보고 그의 이름을 믿었으나 예수는 그의 몸을 그들에게 의탁하지 아니하셨으니 이는 친히 모든 사람을 아시며 또 사람에 대하여 누구의 증언도 받으실 필요가 없었으니 이는 그가 친히 사람의 속에 있는 것을 아셨음이니라. It says that Jesus would not entrust himself to these people who have just turned to him. And they said, we believe in your name, we accept you. Because he apparently knew what was in the hearts of these people. He knows each one of us, each individual one of us, exactly where our heart lies our intentions, our motives. And God is in the business of doing that. Sometimes we say as human beings, in order to make adjustments to the situations in life, we put on a face, we put on a facade, we, we go through motions. Sometimes even in worship services, we do the same. Sometimes Christians for years in their Christian walk, they operate that way without asking the question, what is it really about? It's really about our heart. It's really about our relationship with the Lord, whether it's genuine, authentic. In order for it to be truly authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to discern our hearts. And that's what Jesus does. He's in the business of discerning our hearts so that we can better our relationship with Him. So, one thing for sure, just because you see some miraculous signs or wonders or some miracles or some supernatural happenings and go, wow, who did that? Jesus, yeah, I want that Jesus too. I want some miracles in my life. I want some money happening in my life. I want some great things happening in my life. 내 팔자를 좀 고쳐주기를 바란데 예수님이 고쳐주신다면 why not? Well, for Jesus, that's not good enough. You know, That's like saying, I'm interested in Marrying this person, and uh, I'm just interested in for the benefits that I get from her. She's going to wash the dishes, cook for me, and do my laundry, and have kids for me, and raise them up. And that's not good enough for love or marriage. There's got to be more. Our inner motives, our inner hearts need to be tested. And this is what Jesus is getting at. So why is this considered a context? Because right after this statement, Jesus' encounter with a man named Nicodemus happens. And this is exactly the case in point that 
I think Apostle John, the author, wanted to make. And so now, let us turn to the story of Nicodemus, beginning with chapter 3, verse 1. Now, one thing we see right away in this uh, particular story that we're about to read is that Nicodemus is, in today's word, in today's terminology, a seeker. He's not a believer yet. He's not one who is all sold out for Jesus, but at the same time, he's not hostile to Jesus either. So he is interested in Jesus. He's inquiring of Jesus, and he approaches Jesus in a manly way. He's polite. He's respectful. He's open-minded. He wants to enter into true, genuine dialogue with Jesus. I don't think he's a hypocrite. I don't think he's just putting on a mask. I think he's genuinely seeking for something in Christ. 그래서 니고데모는 오늘날 우리가 표현을 하자면 말로 표현을 하자면 seeker 또는 구도자라고 우리가 부를 수가 있습니다. Now let us read this text beginning with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. 그런데 바리새인 중에 니고데모라 하는 사람이 있으니 유대인의 지도자라. 그가 밤에 예수께 와서 이르되, 라비어, 우리가 당신은 하나님께로부터 오신 선생인 줄 아나이다. 하나님이 함께 하시 아니하시면 당신이 행하시는 이 표적을 아무도 할수 없음이니라. Few things that we can know right away about Nicodemus is that he was a Pharisee. Now, the term Pharisees comes from the Hebrew word perushim, which literally means separatists. In other words, they felt that they were so righteous and so holy, law-abiding, that they could not identify with any common people. So they separated themselves. They would even separate themselves from other religious parties, like the Sadducees or the Essenes. They felt so particularly favorable by God because they were trying to walk this path of righteousness. And they called themselves Pharisees. And Nicodemus was one of them. So we know that he was a religious man. He was a law-abiding person. He really honored the word of God. He was also a member of the Jewish ruling council known as Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin is the sort of like 오늘날 국회, 또는 평의회, some kind of an assembly of all these leaders who come together to make decisions and direct the lives of the nation of Israel. And so um, this, this uh, Sanhedrin is the group that uh, Nicodemus belonged to. So he was obviously of a, an aristocratic or high ruling uh, class uh, in the whole body of the people of God in those days. And here we see now that he is actually, even though he's a Pharisee, he's a member of the ruling council of Israel, he is also a seeker of Jesus because Jesus had just emerged on the scene and people were kind of gravitating toward him. And who is this guy? Who is this person? And so he is curious about Jesus. And we know that he is sympathetic toward Jesus because we see him 
uh, emerging in chapter 7 and 19 as well. In one case, he's actually defending Jesus before other religious rulers. And at the end, when Jesus dies, he was right there with Joseph of Arimathea bearing Jesus. So he was obviously very sympathetic toward Jesus. But the question that will be posed today is, is that enough to be friendly to Jesus, to be accommodating to Jesus, to be open-minded to Jesus? Did you know that Gandhi was very much open-minded to Jesus Christ and especially the New Testament teachings from the Gospels? He was very much open to Jesus Christ. And yet, was he truly a believer, truly a convicted person in Christ? He was not. So, let's check out Nicodemus. Now, one thing we see in the text that we have read is that in verse 2, it says that he came to Jesus at night. Now, it may just be a statement of fact that he did come at night, so John says he came at night. But we know that John uses terms and phrases in a very symbolic way, and oftentimes in a metaphoric way. And so he defines night all throughout this gospel, and it's not in the positive. Why did he come in the night? Well, first of all, in the positive, he probably came in the night to spend some private time with Jesus. 밤에 예수님을 만나는 게 훨씬 낫지. 낮에 수많은 사람들이 와글와글 하는데 그 가운데서 예수님을 접근하기 어렵단 말이에요. So we come to Jesus in the privacy of the night. But there must be more. Why did he come in the night? In secrecy, perhaps because he didn't want to get discovered by other religious rulers. If Sanhedrin found out about this, you know, they might interrogate him. And, you know, he may find himself in, in an awkward position, but he's a seeker, and yet he cannot be open and transparent about this in the public. Now, this is very interesting. So Nicodemus comes and uh, just elevates Jesus, compliments Jesus, calls him rabbi, and says, wow, you're a great teacher from God. You've done these great miracles. You know, surely God must be with you. 한마디를 말하지만 아부 하는 거잖아요. 그렇죠? You know, ah, Jesus. Flattery words. And so you would think that Jesus would be taken by that and, you know, be really seeker-friendly about it in today's terms. But his approach is so different from today's approach of what we call seeker-friendly or seeker-sensitive type of ministry. Because when we turn to verse 3, this is what Jesus had to say. His first word, very truly or literally, Amen, Amen. Those are, that's the declaration of affirmation. That, that's like saying, um, let it be so. This is without a doubt so. And this is what he says. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, is that secret sensitive? <laughs> I mean, here's a guy who says, I'm interested in you. Are you born again? Is your life flipped upside down? Radically transformed? 
and you're giving allegiance to me. Is that what you're looking for? That's not secret sensitive. Actually, that's very secret insensitive because it's really getting in your face and being upfront about the essence of the gospel. What is implied in Jesus speaking these words that no one can see or experience the kingdom of God unless they are born again? Well, Jesus is actually challenging all these presumptions that these religious rulers, Pharisees, Sadducees, the high priests, the scribes, all the religious sects, even the Essenes or, or very, very esoteric type of groups, He's saying, your claim to righteousness or piety, or your claiming to stand in the right standing with the Lord, is not enough. Your pedigree, your ancestry, your ethnicity, your class, and also maybe your intellect, because I think he was a very learned man. Later, Jesus says, you are the teacher of Israel. It's not good enough. Then what is good enough for God? And the answer is, nothing is good enough for God. He would be impossible to please if we talk in terms of psychology today. He would demand such a perfection of us that it would be impossible for anybody to be able to measure up. 그렇기 때문에 우리가 그 하나님의 그 기준에 맞춰서 우리가 계속 우리의 의를 쌓아 나간다는 것은 어리석은 것이라는 거예요. 합격할 수가 없어요. 예수님 만족시킬 수가 없는 거예요. We would all be disqualified. And I think one of the things that Jesus is saying too, like even in Christian circles, we see a lot of uh, individuals who um, have basically an amazing pedigree or amazing, amazing luck or fortune of being, having been raised in Christian circles and uh, having uh, just kind of luxuriated in the Christian setting. So that my father or my mother was an elder or uh, they were praying people or my parents were pastors and I come from the lineage of pastors. How many of you are like that? You come from really good and religious uh, setting. Your context like that. Because if none of you are like that, I shouldn't be even talking about this context. I should talk about something else, which is rather easy. That is, oh man, our, our my family background is a mess. I come from a broken family. It's all ruined and it's, it's polluted and we come from agnostic or, or atheistic background. Then it's much simpler because the term being born again can be so relevant to people like that because that's what they're looking for. I need to radically change. I need to be born again. I, I need a second chance or new chance in my life. But it's somewhat of a different story. If you think you're in the right, you've been walking that path of righteousness. You know, uh, my family, my pedigree is way up there. 
And this is who Nicodemus was. A man who thought, I was doing very good, and now you're telling me I have to just convert everything and flip everything upside down, inside out, and you're going to mess up this wonderful hierarchy of a system that I have created, and I call that spirituality or piety, and you're messing it all up? Well, Jesus is saying, what is really needed is a rebirth of our hearts and minds. And so in verse 4, this is what Nicodemus asks. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You know, if you see the dialogue between uh, Nicodemus and Jesus, and all throughout the Gospel of John, if you see these dialogues of these individuals who encounter Jesus, we see something very interesting. From the very beginning, Jesus says something very difficult. He, he never tries to kind of soothe or ease himself into a dialogue with people. He just says something that is very confrontational, very challenging, very difficult, almost like a riddle or some kind of, you know, a maze of an idea or concept. And then it causes people to scratch their heads. What, what are you talking about? I, and they give some kind of naive or uh, ignorant type of remarks to that. And it causes them to ask even more questions to Jesus. And then Jesus does not, it does, the dialogue doesn't end with that. He takes it even further and makes it even more difficult. And they go, what? And they just get frustrated and they give up. And then they finally, then what are you saying, Jesus? And then finally Jesus gives the answer to them. And this is what John recognized about the way Jesus was approaching these individuals. And this is exactly what he is doing here too. So I want to talk about this whole issue of being born again. First of all, the term born again, as it is translated here, born again, the term again in Greek is anothen. Could you repeat after me? Anothen. And there are three interpretations of this term, anothen. First of all, it could simply mean again in the sense of second birth. That is, you were born first in a physical sense from your mom's womb. You came into this world. Now you have to experience a second time, a new type of birth. Again, you need to be born. Or it could be talking about being born from the beginning or being radically born. It has to do with the radical nature of this kind of birth. Or third way it is expressed is from above. That is, you're born from heaven or born from God. It can't happen in the natural, so the source has to be God. You have to be born of God. And I believe we can take all of these three ideas and say being born again means you have to Literally, think about this new way of experiencing God, which is kind of like a birth that you experienced long ago. Now you need to experience that spiritually speaking or mystically speaking. And secondly, 
we should think of the concept of born again as something radical. It takes some kind of radical turnaround, radical flip around, a revolution happening in your heart or in your soul. And thirdly, we can say that that could never happen apart from God. You can't just climb up the ladder and try to ascend to God. Rather, God has to descend upon you and does something radical in your heart or life for you to be flipped around so that you are now centered upon God. Now, let's take this concept of being born of water and spirit because Jesus mentions this as well. What is the relationship between water and spirit? And theologians have really debated over this uh, in, in so many ways. And there are basically three versions that we come up with. First, water has to do with the natural birth. You have to be born as a human being before you can talk about being born again in a spiritual sense. So first birth has to do with your natural birth, and that may be referring to the amniotic fluid, uh, you know, which it flows out as the water is broken and we flow out with that, we're birthed into this world, and the spiritual birth. Second interpretation is that maybe it's referring to water baptism of John, because in the earlier chapters we have seen that John's baptism, which requires repentance of our sins and then God granting forgiveness or cleansing of our sins, that may be required. And then it talks about the spirit baptism that the Messiah would give. And so it is a coupling of that. There is the essence of the water baptism, which is referring to repentance and forgiveness. Spirit baptism has to do power that will come upon you so that you can live a righteous life for the Lord. But I believe the third version is what I would just naturally go with. And that is both the water and the spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit. These are two analogies of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Because the water we'll see, especially in chapters 4 and 7, is an analogy of the Holy Spirit in terms of cleansing or quenching of our thirst. And the Spirit, which is in Hebrew is ruach, and which in Greek is pneuma, it literally means either breath or wind. And so it is saying that basically you have to be born of the water and the wind or breath of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to uh, talk about this working of the Holy Spirit that we find in verse 8. And Jesus does not, does not elaborate on this much, but he does say this one thing about the way the Spirit works. And I think it's very mysterious, and I think we need to understand how the Spirit works. The Spirit or the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear a sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. 바람이 임의로 불 때, 내가 그 소리는 들어도 어디서 와서 어디로 가는지 알지 못하나니 성령으로 난 사람도 다 그러하니라. The wind blows wherever it pleases. What does that mean? Can anybody possibly control the wind? Oh yeah, we control the wind. We got windmills, don't we? No, it doesn't control the wind. It actually utilizes the power of the wind and directs it in a certain way. 
but it does not control the wind. There's no way you can control the wind because if the wind doesn't blow, the windmill stops. You know, in the western part of the United States, we have all of this high technology of, of structure of windmills. All throughout, when you're driving down the freeway, I oftentimes see them. And it's, it's quite ecstatic when all these huge giant fans are, you know, rotating. You know, I'm driving and there's wind gushing and I feel so powerful just beholding them. Inspirational. But there are times when nothing is happening. They're just stuck there. No rotation whatsoever. There's no movement of the wind. And I realized that even the windmill, you may build up the structure, you're totally at the mercy of the sovereignty of the wind. If the wind refuses to blow, or if God refuses to allow the wind to blow, then no windmill, nothing. So when Jesus says, wind blows wherever it pleases, he's talking about the sovereign way of the Holy Spirit. Or the most free way the Holy Spirit operates. We talk about human freedom and we want to be sovereign in our own rights, right? But before we talk about that in proper theology, we've got to talk about the freedom and the sovereignty of God to do things according to His will. We've got to give Him that right. We've got to give Him that sovereignty. And only in that light we talk about our sovereignty or our freedom. It's a relative thing for us. But what humanism advocates is that we elevate our sovereignty and our free will to a point that we match God. And it's like, God, your will and my will. It's as though we are wrestling with God. This is nonsense. Because in actuality, God's sovereignty and free will overshadows everything that we could possibly talk about. Our sovereignty, our right, and our will. So if you want to be truly born again in Christ, you have to submit to this reality. The wind blows wherever it pleases. Then let's look at the next phrase. You hear a sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. In other words, you cannot predict. You cannot manipulate. You definitely cannot control the Holy Spirit. In other words, you, you don't have a handle on this. I don't care what kind of charismatic experiences you've had. I personally had so much charismatic experiences. You know, Mijin can tell you her experiences uh, in our time together in America when we planted a church there and we ministered together as a team there. We were heavily involved in charismatic type of ministry. We have seen and experienced all sorts of supernatural manifestations. We think we understand the ways of the Holy Spirit a little bit. But one thing I learned at the end of all that is that I can't possibly predict. I don't care how much I prophesy. I can't possibly predict. I cannot possibly manipulate or maneuver and definitely not control the Holy Spirit. So what must I do in my relationship with the Holy Spirit? I must surrender. I can't grasp it, so I must surrender and let him grasp me. You could only experience the Holy Spirit through receptivity and sensitivity. 
You know, aren't you glad that we have such a wonderful worship leader singing? She's a, a piano teacher. She's, she's majored in piano, and she's a wonderful, I think, jazz piano, too, of all types of playing. And isn't it wonderful mm -hmm. to see her playing and just leading us? You know how difficult it is for her to lead us in English? You know, Korean is her native language, and English is second language. And yet she's doing such a wonderful job. You know, in the realm of music, it's not just about hitting the notes, making the sound, or just sing, singing the song, right? Music has a lot to do with sensitivity and receptivity. I, I, I sometimes watch musicians like singing, and she's getting into, and what is she doing? What is, what is trying to, why is she closing her eyes? Why is she moving? Why, why is she, what is, what is she doing? She's trying to sense and be inspired. Not just do it in the rote fashion. The beautiful thing about jazz music is uh, there's a lot of improvisation to this. You don't know exactly how this will lead. So you learn a lot of dif different types of chord progressions so that you, you have a lot of options open. Isn't that true? I don't want to sound like an expert because I'm not. But I remember when my wife was taking some jazz piano lessons, you know, I got so interested in that dynamic. Wow, what is that? It's to free us so that we can really flow with the spirit. Two analogies I'd like to give you when you're thinking about moving in the spirit. Think of a sailboat, not a motorboat, sailboat. Okay, you put up the sail, and then what do you do? You see the wind coming, but you can maneuver to the degree of your sensitive dependence upon the spirit. You can maximize your movements by knowing how to cooperate with the spirit or the wind. Or think of flying a kite. Have you ever flied a kite before, like by the Hangang? You know, wow. It's not you controlling it. You're you, you sensing the tug and the pull and the wind, and then you're maneuvering that. That's the only way with the spirit of God. This is not some mechanical thing, some technical thing, some regulational thing, some programming thing that we enter into, not even a routine thing that we enter into. It's learning how to truly be free to be led by the sovereignty of God's spirit. Let us move on in verse 9. So Nicodemus asks, how can this be? And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. Because what Jesus is saying is, I'm not the first one telling you this. The Spirit has been mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. You know, Moses knew how to operate by the Spirit. Samuel knew how to operate by the Spirit. Elijah knew how. All the classical prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they talk about the Spirit and being, being born of the Spirit and a heart's, stony heart's changing because the Spirit puts a new heart in us. They've been talking about this, and you are a teacher of Israel. You understand the law. You study the Scripture. And yet, you say you don't understand these things. Why do you suppose Nicodemus was so blinded that he could not see the obvious teaching of Jesus. 
I think once again, he had too much in his mind. He had too much in terms of his, his lineage or his status or his reputation. He had too much learning, you might even say. How many of you realize that sometimes even I study theology and I also research about different topics. Sometimes my head is so jammed with all this data about God that something so obvious, so simple, cannot be perceived. And I have a head damage. Sometimes I have a, a mind damage or heart damage. It's like a computer that is so filled with so much data and so much virus that it's jammed. What do we need in a case like that? What do we need, our IT person? We have to reformat it. We have to just factory reset everything. You got to do something radical. I don't want to do radical because I got all these things going on. I can't get rid of all that. I don't want to download them, upload it again. You don't want to go through the hassle because it takes an entire day for you to hand over your precious computer, laptop, and, and let somebody totally factory set it for you. I don't want to do that. That's why I just linger on and I saw jam. It's, it's groggy. It's, it's, you know, mushy. It's, it's like it's stuck. But I continue to insist upon that and go, what's wrong with this? Comes and tries to fix it. He keeps on telling me, Pastor, you just need to hand it over to me and trust me for a day. I can't trust you for a day. You know how busy I am. I gotta work on this. I gotta uh, tap into. I gotta tap into the internet sources. I gotta do my research. I gotta type up my thesis. Pastor, I can't help you unless you hand it over, surrender that into my hand, so I can wipe it all out and reset it. And then, of course, you're gonna have to take another day putting all the data back in and reloading with softwares. We don't want that hassle. But Jesus saying. You must go through that hassle. You must invest in that process called spiritual surgery. You must lay yourself down at the operating table of God and say, cut me, open me up, take it all out, and put a new heart in me. Let's continue on reading in verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of eternal things? Of course, we're not going to find all the answers as to how do we get born again. Jesus will talk about that, and John will articulate that in a sort of his own theology in the section that is to follow. So you got to stay in tune for next Sunday's message to really grasp. It's a two-part of the same message. But what we can conclude is this, that if we operate like Nicodemus, parading around and just bask in our glory of how much we have arrived, how much we have accomplished, 
how much we have deposited in our minds and souls. We have become the elite of the society, elite even of spiritual society. We have so much asset, spiritually speaking, intellectually, financially, social, perhaps even politically speaking. Then we are so full, so plentiful, so sufficient in ourselves that it is very difficult to have room for something else so that we can open our eyes and grasp the truth of God's word. No wonder the kingdom of God does not belong to the high and mighty. This is very clear from the teachings of Jesus and all the prophets preceding Jesus. Kingdom of God does not belong to the high and mighty. If you belong to the high and mighty, if you think you are high and mighty, intellectually speaking, high IQ or nice academic degrees, or if you think you are high and mighty because you got money and you got resources, you got inheritance coming your way, if you feel so high and mighty because, wow, all this supernatural gifts and manifestations I have been endowed with. Whatever it may be, if you are full and plentiful and think that you are sufficient in your own self, then why would you need God? Why would you need the kingdom of God, which is to be translated as the sovereign rule of God upon your life. You have everything. Now you can rule. Now you can be the king. Why would you want to be a subject to Jesus Christ? You see, the kingdom of God belongs to not the high and mighty, but to the lowly and humble. Now this is not to say if you have all these things, that you cannot belong to the lowly and humble. I have some of these things. I, I have the highest degree that I could go for. I could go for another PhD, but one is sufficient in this society. I feel like I have some spiritual experiences. I could put myself in certain category. I definitely don't have money, so I got nothing to boast about there. I'm really poor in that. That I can really humble myself before God. But everything that I have, like great family, great pedigree, all these have to be surrendered before the Lord. You cannot use that as a credit to experience the deep and high dimensions of God. I'd like to give you three statements that Jesus spoke. I think these are very critical statements. You might want to just memorize them, jot them down, memorize them. We see in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitude section, the first statement Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, is this. Let's recite this together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because if you're poor, you're empty, you're open, you're humble enough to say, whatever, God. And so God pours everything out to us. Secondly, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, Jesus makes this statement. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be childlike. You have to be open-minded. 
You have to be inquisitive about things. You have to be humble and dependent. You have to place yourself in the status of a child, not a status of a high and mighty Pharisee or member of Sanhedrin or elite aristocratic class. You have to place yourself and identify with little children. You know, because of this word of Jesus, I, I love learning from little children. I think maybe they understand the way to the kingdom much more than I, after having learned all of this theology and all, could ever do. So I learned from little children by watching them. What is it about little children that Jesus highly commended? And then finally, we come back to the verse that we have studied today together. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 사람이 거듭나지 아니하면 하나님의 나라를 볼수 없느니라. These are all pretty much the similar type of statement. We need to be poor. We need to be childlike. We need to just do it all over again because it's a mess right now where we are. Because we try to elevate ourselves. We try to climb up the ladder. Compete with others, compare ourselves with others, and brush others aside. And I become the king of the mountain. None of these are the mentalities of the kingdom of God. And God is in the business of wiping them clean so that we become truly poor in spirit, childlike, and like a babe born again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for. Uh, your tremendous love and grace upon our lives. We thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ and the love demonstrated through Jesus to us. Lord, uh, you have shown us the way today that there is no humanly possible ways to enter into the kingdom, to be born again, spiritually speaking, apart from complete surrender and submission to you, Lord. We basically have to do it all over again. Lord, help us. Even this week, if we have piled up too much of our own self-righteousness and we have imitated the ways of the Pharisees, then Lord, help us to Repent and humble ourselves. Because we cannot go into heaven simply as a Pharisee, but only as a Pharisee who is born again by the Spirit of God. We don't know what happened to Nicodemus, but Lord, your words must have definitely pierced his heart and challenged his soul. And you are doing the same thing with us today. Let it challenge us, Lord so that we can look deeply inside of us to see whether we have truly positioned ourselves in the right way to receive the grace from heaven, the Spirit's working hand, touching and moving and transforming our lives. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.